0: Okay, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Biodiversity Podcast by Teasels. And today I'm joined by uh, Wendy Allen and Charlotte Hitchmo of Rain Garden UK. And I'm so glad you guys can join me today. Um, really looking forward to this podcast. Uh, we briefly met, well, not briefly. We spent a weekend together a few weekends ago on one of the uh, amazing courses, which we will talk about later. Um, but I found that fascinating and I, and I thought it would be a really great opportunity for you guys to um, explain in greater depth what you guys do and, and how that impacts positively on on uh, biodiversity. So um, over to you guys. So Charlotte, um, uh, over to you.
1: Brilliant. Uh, well, thanks very much. We're excited to be here. Um, I've got a few slides that we could uh, whiz through. Um, just to introduce Wendy and I and then give a little bit of context about um, so why 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 either of us decided rain gardens were a good idea. Um, yeah. so let me just get that running.
0: I'm just going to interject. If you are listening to this on the audio podcast, I would put your iPod down because it's going to be slightly pictorial. So it's probably best that you uh, yeah, you go and view it on on, on our YouTube channel. But um, over to you, Charlotte.
1: Brilliant. Good. good. Um, so, firstly, apologies for the background noise. I'm we're in the office here today, which is a lovely treat, but it means that um uh, there's a bit of background going, going backwards and forwards. It's a hive of, um, ac-
0: it's a hive of activity. It's a really not it? Is, Kennet HQ, isn't it? <laughs>
1: it's supposed to be a quiet day in the office, and it turns out it's not. Uh, anyway, I um a little bit of background about me. So um I work for Action for the River Kennet. We're one of um, Britain's rivers trusts. Um and, and that's the angle I have come from this uh, uh, from. So I'm I'm interested in water, water quality, wetland environments. Um, but the, the thing that sort of really um, made me excited about rain gardens is they are a brilliant way of um, both alleviating drought, but also alleviating flooding and cleaning water and adding biodiversity. You know, there are so many benefits. Um, And we've been talking about sustainable drainage and how that's a better way of managing water, particularly in our urban environment. Um, And there are so few examples of good sustainable drainage. Um, And so I really was interested in in finding out more um, and and how we could be part of uh, building more. So we as an organization, decided that we were going to um, make some rain gardens and our very first project was um, called Rainscapes. Um, And at that point, I completely serendipitously bumped into Wendy Allen, who it turns out lives locally. And in all our research, um, we keep coming up uh, with examples of gardens that Wendy has done because she's really been leading the way in um, rain gardens in, in domestic settings. And that's really where we wanted to, to move to. So that's how Wendy and I came together. Um, and um, so this is this is Wendy. Um, there I am. That's and a very, I'll, I'll that's let you a, introduce yourself, to, Wendy, with a lovely I've, photo of you just there.
0: I've got to say, that's a very posed picture. That's very, this is my best side. That is, uh, it's very, very Dan
1: Pearson, isn't it? Like it one. is very Dan Pearson. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you should be looking whimsically into the horizon. Into into
2: yeah, um, I was equally excited to meet Charlotte because normally nobody's ever heard of me so it's great to meet somebody as enthusiastic about the potential of rain gardens that I am and I trained as a garden designer I think about 15 years ago and uh, very quickly got sidetracked into suds and rain gardens because of, I love a, a space that is also functional as well as aesthetic and um, to tip both those boxes for me. Was brilliant, so it was great to meet um, someone from my local Rivers Trust who wanted to give me the opportunity to create exciting schemes in schools. Um, and I think uh, you know schemes in schools give reign to more opportunities for creativity sometimes than in domestic gardens as well. So it's a good opportunity for me as well, and that's why between us we decided to form. Rain Garden UK in order to share the suds and get other people interested and uh, making them aware really of of the existence of rain gardens um, as small-scale achievable features in their own gardens.
1: Mm. And and this is my my favourite slide of the moment, um, which I'm thinking that uh, Dan's audience will be very familiar with this, and and particularly after... um, COP26, but this is the climate stripes, um, which is, for me, the the most visual way of illustrating that climate change is is here now, it's not something that's in the future, it's something that's impacting us now, and it's one of the reasons why we really need to look at drainage. Um, As as the air gets warmer, it's able to hold more water, Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why we're seeing these changing rainfall patterns as part of climate change. Um, so we're, we're sort of entering a wetter world, but the rainfall's landing in a different pattern. So we're, we're seeing much more frequent, intense storms uh, and then periods of dryness, which is not, not what our society has, has been built to deal with. So the climate stripes here were developed by Reading University. Um, you can um, go onto their website, um, which is called Show Your Stripes, and you can create these stripes for different locations across the planet, um, depending what, what on illustrat- what you're illustrating. Um, but the, the, the bottom line is, if it's blue, it's below average, a year that was below average temperature, and if it's red, it's a year that was above average temperature, and very quickly you can see that it's getting warmer um, and we know that's also affecting the way that the rainfall is behaving and of course that's been compounded by the fact that we've built on huge areas of land and even at a garden scale you know if you look out of your um, window at home you'll see more sheds more patios more driveways we are creating vast swathes of completely impermeable land um, which means we get much more runoff and then we see that in in the way that rivers behave um, so we're getting much flashier, floodier behavior from rivers. Um, so there's there's both fluvial flooding, but, but localized surface water flooding. Uh, and then, of course, the whole issue around um, um, sewage overflows, which have been so much in the news just recently. Uh, so this slide here has just got uh, couple of illustrations of what happens when we interrupt our water cycle. Um, So if if we have long dry periods and abstract a huge amount of water from um, the aquifers, we end up with a completely dry riverbed. Um, And if we have too much water, so much that the pipes can't cope, the rainwater mixed with the sewage overspills and inevitably gets into our river, whether it's because it's being directed there, because that's where the pipe goes, or whether it's just a piece of infrastructure overflowing close to the river it's causing a huge amount of pollution so we're turning our sort of cool clear constant rivers into warm murky chaotic rivers and and that pollution of our rivers and pollution of our water is something we should all be taking really seriously because there are a few things we absolutely can't live without but water is one of the things we absolutely can't live without Um, and we all have an opportunity to to make it better um, which is why rain gardens are so appealing because it's something that everybody can do to be part of the solution rather than just worrying about the problem. Um, so uh, one of the most useful things to happen to, to help this kind of communication in the last couple of years is the Rivers Trust got a whole load of data together um, about how frequently um, sewage treatment works overflow and they've put it together in this map called is my river fit to play in And for the first time it's exposed how much pollution is going into our rivers as a result of pipes being overwhelmed. Um, And one of the reasons pipes are overwhelmed is that the surface water, so the water that lands on our roofs and our drives um, goes into the pipes and the pipes just can't cope. And so um, they're the same pipes that carry sewage. And when the pipes can't cope, they just overflow. They're designed to overflow, it's a safety feature. but they were designed to overflow in extreme circumstances occasionally. And and what we're seeing is that it's happening routinely because the capacity of the network isn't great enough. Um, So that's one of the reasons uh, why I'm so interested in rain gardens, because they can be a a real help in removing that unnecessary rainwater from the system and stopping the overflows and reducing river pollution.
0: So, Charlotte, Um, Charlotte, one thing that that springs to mind is, is I think it's important to to make the point that um, by, like you say, by individual homes doing their bit, um, I think we can feel he- uh, helpless at some points. We see this massive problem and it seems so big that we can't, you know, us individuals can't address it. But I think it'd be really important to state that, you know, if we all do our bit individual um, uh, householders, and we can we can take we do our bit to take the strain off the sewage system, and that will have an impact.
1: You're absolutely right. And, and you know, one rain garden on its own won't make much difference. But a street full of rain gardens, and suddenly the numbers are getting really quite big. And if all if all you did was have a water butt, that that would be a massive, great first step. Um, so you know, rain gardens are much more than a water butt, but you know as an entry level that's a that's an incredibly useful thing that everybody can do so you know this is it's all very achievable um and at scale is is a big part of the solution and it and again i think you're absolutely right it gets away from that, that feeling of helplessness this is something that we can everybody can do mm. um i always feel i have to apologize for talking about the four pillars of science because it's 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 such a sort of strange way of expressing things but um SUDS is the acronym for sustainable drainage. Um, And a good sustainable drainage system is much more than a a pipe to a hole in the ground or a series of um, underground plastic crates to create a soak away. A good sustainable drainage system, which is what a rain garden is, will address water quantity, water quality, amenity and biodiversity. So Mm. it should be making nicer places to live. It should be providing amazing opportunities for increasing biodiversity. It will also clean water and it will also manage flooding and it, it potentially can also store water for use in dry time. So it helps with water quality on that side as uh, water quantity on that side as well. So both the flooding side localized flooding and also storing water for use during drought. Yeah.
0: So if we can just if we can go back to that slide and we'll just if yeah we'll just stay on that slide for a little bit longer because as you're talking uh, the phrase "piped a bomb crater," somebody uh, somebody once said, and I think that's a really good expression. And and it's really it's really um, interesting, upsetting to see how many sud schemes are just a big slimy hole in the ground with a with a pipe coming out coming into the hole. And I think it's um, so many missed opportunities. You know, that the other three the other three pillars aren't really being dealt with. Yeah. So. But- um...
1: Exactly, and I completely agree. And also I think it misses that opportunity to communicate with the people who are moving into those houses that they are, that they're part of a sustainable drainage system Mm. by still sticking with the basic model that's an underground pipe coming from a house that they can't see. It means that in future when misconnection inevitably happened, it's still invisible. Whereas if everything's on the surface, if somebody misconnects to it very quickly, you'll see soapy water going down that uh, that section of of um, sort of open. Um, I, I'm I'm going to call it a rill because it sounds pretty. <laughs> um, so, um, but you know we want well, rills, not not underground pipes. We want systems that are easy to maintain, that 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 yeah. obviously explain what they're doing, that anybody can understand, and, and this, rather this than this mis- management,
2: Charlotte as well started right outside front doors on new developments of exactly. I mean, talking about developments of you know over a certain amount of houses for the pipe to create a solution to be a commonly seen feature but if the suds was on the surface in everybody's garden it makes everyone living in that um, area more aware of what they can do on an individual level to help alleviate the problem or even what the problem is as well yeah. and, and that doesn't even touch on the biodiversity benefits that that brings
1: to individual gardens as well Um, so, so yeah, this sort of idea of of managing um, every element um, and I'm not going to tell you the story of Bob's coffee shop now, you can come (laughs) on one of our workshops and learn the story of Bob's coffee shop. Um, But, but really the, the, you know, the whole idea is if you look at your local landscape and how much completely impermeable surface there is, and then think, right, where can I create space for water to soak into the landscape? You know, opportunities to depave, opportunities to add rainwater planters, opportunities to add rain gardens. You know, a typical British High Street or any residential area is absolutely full of those opportunities. Um, it just takes a little bit of imagination and, and some community enthusiasm. So even if the rain garden's not happening in your actual garden, there's the, 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 the tons of opportunity for community action to, to really start to make a difference. Yeah. Um, And that will improve water quality in both because rain that lands in a rain planter or a rain garden and comes out the other end will come out cleaner, but also we will be keeping a huge amount of runoff off the streets. And that means that that polluted water won't be running into our rivers. Um, And and that's sort of the big win from from my perspective is the more dirty water we can keep out of rivers, um, the better life is. Um, So the little photograph there is um, just taken last week a typical rainfall event, just dirty water washing off a road into a river. And all of that water has come from residential areas. It doesn't, it it could, only the water that physically lands on the road needs to be in that bit what what actually happens is the water tipping off roofs and drives is also mixing in with that and that's the vast majority of the water so we could you know we could really make a measurable difference there um and then the biodiversity thing i mean wendy's going to talk a lot about plants and planting um but the one of the biggest things I've learned in the last year is when we think of biodiversity we really often think about you know the plants and the flowers at the top of the top of the land you know we imagine the birds and the bees and the butterflies they're all going to benefit massively by our planting but by having a good biodiverse planting in any sort of garden situation you do a phenomenal amount of for the soil and there's so much biodiversity that is under the ground that we never really thought about. Um, But in some ways that's the biggest opportunity to increase biodiversity is to get healthy soil. Um, And then you get all the things that live in the soil also increasing. So um, we know that um, we have only, as science has only identified 1% of the microorganisms that live in the soil. The rest of it, we don't even know what they are. there's so much benefit that, that soil has, um, and so much we don't understand, but every time there's a, an increasing under an increase in understanding, we suddenly realize how valuable soil is. And, and to bury all that opportunity under concrete slabs, you know, we, we just don't need to be doing it. There are so many really positive things we can do by keeping spaces green um, that will help all the rest of the spaces that that, that we live in. Um, and, and and sort of finally, in a way, the most important bit is if if we can create these green spaces that can soak in water, we are we are creating great amenity. You know, they are interesting things to look at. They make space nicer to live in. Um, you know, we know about sort of the urban heat island effect and how increased planting in those areas can really help with uh, urban cooling. We know that plants will increase. Uh, air quality that will reduce pollution um and we know they look nice and we know that children who play in green playgrounds have better behavior you know there's there's so much science that that tells us that green spaces make us as people feel better um and if they can also manage water well then you know why aren't we doing more of it and it, you know, it's a phenomenal opportunity and um and really exciting to be part of it and and, and we're sort of super keen that people learn more and, and start to to really do it you know actually think about it and then do it because it's 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 not difficult it's just a case of sort of thinking it through and and seeing it as a really exciting opportunity
0: i think it, the thing that came out of the, the course for me is that like you say it, it's not that difficult and it's just that comfort it's just that confidence to not be overawed by it all like it, it is it is achievable yes you know you've got to You've got to, you know, you've got to think about it. You've got to think about flows. You've got to think about other things, but it's not a, it's not a, you know, you haven't got to make a Herculean effort to, to get these systems in place. You know, I, I think that that's the one thing that came from the course of me, like, you know, it is achievable, like you say, with, with a community effort, you, 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 you can get these systems up and running relatively. Um, yeah. Relatively quickly.
1: Yeah, you, you really can. And I think, you know, I, I would like us to move to a point where um, sort of like in Portland, Oregon, and, and sort of other places around the world where there's really financial incentives as well. So as well as giving people the right information and the confidence to do it, they also will help them pay for the cost of doing it because any anything new costs a bit of money. Uh, and at the moment there is an incentive, but it's it's modest.
0: So you, sure if are you saying twelve pounds sixty is not an incentive? I mean, why? What to be doing? You,
1: it? it's, it's better than twelve pounds sixty because it's usually backdated, so it might be multiples of twelve pounds sixty. But um, but um, anybody who doesn't put surface water into their drainage network at, from from their private property um, will get a rebate from their water company, and um, that that's you know potentially a, a useful thing that helps. Um, incentivize people to do it but you know we would like to see bigger incentives than that and and I I think that will be something that's coming as as we start to recognize what the benefits of of these um, schemes are
0: I don't want to go down that route because we could talk for four hours about it but, (laughs) um, but the more the more but the more I sort of do my own reading you you can see those markets those markets are developing aren't they so
1: they are and there's plenty of models in other parts of the world that we could learn from. Um, And and certainly it's been very successful in other parts of the world.
2: So as Charlotte was saying, um, Rain Garden UK focuses on what you might do with rainwater in your garden, but it's also useful to know all this, not just as a homeowner, but as a a designer. Um, And although this is going to start with a really high level overview of, of kind of what a rain garden is, it's like a giant sponge. And you've probably heard the term sponge city. Um, Sponge cities are being created uh, worldwide now and where whole cities are designed on the principle uh, of rainwater first and and how when that rainwater falls it's managed and stored and slowed uh, in order to prevent flooding in an urban environment. And that involves a lot of permeable surfaces but also thinking about levels as well and um, Let's just advance this slide, the fact that in some circumstances with no rain you might have areas that can be used with um, as, as sort of dry uh, play areas and then with slightly more heavier rain events they might fill up and be used for a different purpose um, and then if there is a big flood event um, those sort of basins will also cope with that and cities are designed around that principle uh, with rainwater first. first. And effectively, fact, Sponge City obviously needs a lot of investment to get this thing built. But actually, uh, compared with the cost of repairing the damage caused by floods, that initial investment is totally worth it. And Charlotte and I often bandy around the, the statistic that in the UK, you know, 1% uh, of housing is on new developments and the other 99% already exist. So what we can do within our own space to... Uh, manage rainwater is you, know, you might say 99 to 1 times more important than, uh, than, than the stuff that's going on on the new developments. So it's using your garden as an opportunity to slow the flow mm. and I'd highly recommend having a look at slowtheflow.net which is a community initiative that took place or is taking place in Calderdale near Hebden Bridge in north of England where the local community did suffer flooding and took it upon themselves rather than waiting for government solutions and flood controls um, to uh, encourage all local residents to take these small steps and small measures in their own space. Um, And that did include uh, installing water butts and emptying those water butts before a known uh, rain event was due so that the, the water butts collectively acted as a leaky dam know on each property so they massively reduce the surface water that's flowing off of their own properties and it's a great example of how collective acts can really make a difference um and so this is where i probably first put my love of rain gardens into into the public eye was at hampton court 2009 on a garden called the rain chain Um, Is
0: is this your showing off slide
2: this is my showing off slide, yeah, but I won't pretty. play you a video, although I do like to watch the video not well. <laughs> but um, it's more to say, look at all these opportunities when water lands on your building, that you can intercept that rainwater, slow it down, store it, filter it, before it goes anywhere near soaking into the ground. Does it ever even need to reach a surface water drain? Probably not. So there's loads of massive opportunities that you could do. We're not going to talk about green roofs today. I'm sure Dan has has done a previous podcast with the-
0: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Green roof experts. So hopefully we all know what a green roof is, but they can store and slow up to 60% of the rainwater that falls on them. Um, I used a rain chain, which a lot of people haven't heard about. Rain chains use surface tension to get the water from a roof uh, down to the ground. And they're used in other countries a lot. You can get very ornate ones, this is a very simple one, but it's again, it's that start of thinking creatively about how you can you know make rainwater look nice, as well as move it from one place to another. Um, if you look on Pinterest for rain chains, you'll be there all day and they're also very simple to hang from existing gutters. My caveat is hang them a little bit further from a building than you would install a downpipe just to avoid any splashing onto the walls. Um, And then you think about what's under the rain chain. In this case, it was a water butt which stored water. And when the water butt was full, it would overflow into a small rain garden um, that was three metres away from the property and allowed water to soak in. Um, This garden also had small rain planters in, which are filtration rain planters, as sealed units. And they're very useful because they can be placed right next to a building, unlike a rain garden. It's recommended that a rain garden would be three metres away. Um, we go into more detail on all of this on the course, but it's a different way of thinking about a garden from the design point onwards. Think about it from rainwater point of view. Um, for a rain, for sorry, for a garden in Marlborough, uh, which is I've, I've got to
0: interject, I've got to interject here. I wonder how hmm. many people in, in, our, in our industry are our sort of garden design. Industry actually do think about this. They actually think about what, how water is going to is going to uh, act in these gardens, or or whether we just think about them purely from a yes. an aesthetic point of view. And we're perhaps behind. Sorry, present company excluded, of course, but we're we're behind the curve, and people are just. That There's not an awareness of this, and people yeah. get caught out.
2: I think there's a role that garden designers can play in educating clients about the importance of rainwater, and that as Charlotte's just covered, the positives and negatives impacts that it can have. Um, so there is, there's a role there that garden designers can play in communicating information, but to do that they do need to wear a, be aware of the information themselves, and certainly I'm going back 15 years now, but when I trained as a garden designer at a couple of different uh, UK institutions, we, we didn't really cover this in mm. any detail at all, and I don't know how far that's moved on now, Dan, you know, you teach uh, and you're doing a pretty good job of raising awareness out there, but it... Uh, yeah, but I, I'm, ra-
0: I'm raising it, but it's not in any syllabuses at all.
2: Yes, and I think, you know, there's an opportunity to kind of create almost a new, not new, but a tried and tested design methodology that should be more commonly used, which is let's start with the rainwater. Let's start with the existing levels. Let's start with the infiltration. You know, let's, let's start with managing this surface water effectively to reduce the amount that goes into our surface drains. It doesn't sound very glamorous. I'm sure there are better ways of phrasing it. Calling it sustainable drainage systems is not one of them. (laughs) Calling (laughs) it rainscapes might be a way forward because it is like a landscape. You know, it's a rainscape, it's considering it all. Now, and the plan on the right there is is a sort of master plan with some photos around the edge that I did for a client um, on the back garden where we did exactly that and produced them a master plan that they can implement in stages, uh, in phases, um, but but knowing that that master plan is drawn up to enable all the water from the curtilage from the roof of their property to be absorbed within the curtilage on the property. So you know, it's a, it's a starting point really for thinking about a design, um, which is what I like to do, and I've put this slide in, a couple of slides in now, of examples of projects that I've done with Action for the River Kennet mainly, um, and Charlotte, where we have taken sites at schools and introduced rain gardens and or rain planters to try and manage any surface water problems at that site. Um, drown pipes traditionally around here empty onto a pavement. Or a grass verge and then from there that um, what is quite a scary amount of water charges down those actually in a rain event would go onto the pavement onto the road collect pollutants and go into the drain uh, where usually that drain goes straight to the river and so there was a site here at a school uh, which had a a big bare brick wall with the downpipes discharging onto a verge What I liked was these little plants growing out of the wall, because that informed me of the sort of plants that would actually work in the aspect that we had, which was pretty much north facing. Um, I used some of those in rain planters, so we disconnected the downpipes from the verge, essentially, but we had them emptying into a series of uh, filtration rain planters, which we're able to place next to the wall, because as I said, they are sealed units. We used galvanized kettle troughs, which fit with the vernacular of the area and are quite handy to use as rain planters. Um, and we install in those some overflow pipe work uh, and a drainage outlet at the bottom. So water can drain, but we're then in control of where the water goes. Um, And the object of this was to capture and store some of the water and slow slow flow and kind of reduce the impact of that first flush of rainwater on on storm events um and we also installed a water butt as well so
0: i've got to say this wendy because i i feel that um you know i love i absolutely love this project and i think it's a really good way it's a sort of excuse the phrase it's like the gateway drug for people to get involved or get people to get to people to understand about suds and water management and i compare it very much to um you know sort of meadows because when people you know you talk about oh well, you know i want to help bees and birds and all this it's always they always mention meadows and it's people's like people sort of weigh into trying to understand about biodiversity because it's you know it's a it's a lovely mindscape and it looks lovely and that gets people in and I think, and I think that these, these rain gardens, the blue down pipes are such a great way to just, nobody's going to read the Suds manual from page one to 217.
2: <laughs> 917.
0: Nine, oh, <laughs> I must have fallen asleep by page one. Um But, but, but for, for communities, for individuals, this is a really gr- good, great way to sort of connect with this subject in a in a in a stylistic way really
2: yeah my brief from charlotte at action for the river kennett was to create something eye-catching that mm. would make people stop and think and look and we put interpretation boards up uh, on a water butt is a great place for an interpretation board so when people do stop and go my goodness me or words to that effect what is going on on that building they can stop and read about what we're trying to do and that understanding also enables acceptance of something a little bit different so that's very important. Um, So we mentioned water butts and I wanted to put this slide in just because water butts are traditionally quite ugly aren't they Um, you you can't really get nice looking ones and when you do they tend to be very small like those the ones bottom that's 80 litres or 126 litres that would fill up very quickly even in a brief summer storm so it's a good idea if you want to start storing water to put a large water butt onto a downpipe. Um, it's also a good idea to think about volumes a little bit because what you wouldn't want is the water butt to fill up but the rain planter next to it never to receive any water. From the water butt overflow, so there's a, a little bit of thinking to do about volumes, um, but they're an incredibly useful way as we talked about with slowtheflow.net to act as leaky dams and each household could slow the flow just with one of these, but we're not with a water butt ticking the biodiversity box that we would like to tick with a suds scheme. Um, I won't go into IBC tanks, these cubes on the right. They are used. Oh for no,
0: please do, liquids. please do. I well, haven't got oh, much oh.
2: time. I could go on about these all day. They're, they're <laughs> used for transporting liquids, but they come in this kind of steel cage on a pallet. And Charlotte's got one in our garden for water, but they are a cubic meter. So they're a thousand liters of storage, which is great. And they uh, tend to be cheaper than water butts of a lesser size. Um, and they've also got this steel cage, which can be used for growing climbers up and around. So you can you can hide the hideous looking. Water storage as well, if you with a bit of thought, and you can also link them together uh, too. But I'm sort of moving through the garden here. I'm thinking after the green roof and our lovely rain chain or downpipe, where where could we take the water next? And it could be to a water butt. If our space was limited and we couldn't get a big rain garden in, perhaps a water butt or a rain planter would be a way of absorbing some of the rainfall, um, so that we wouldn't need such a big rain garden. Mm. So they're quite handy when space is limited in urban environments. And then these little gadgets, I like to mention downpipe diverters, because they're the way that you get water very simply with a little bit of swearing from an existing downpipe and into uh, the water butt. So it's good to know about those and to have a look through the different types available. It's not a difficult thing to capture water from a downpipe Put it in the water butt, and when that water butt is full, the water would automatically, because it finds its own level, automatically overflow back down the downpipe. Um, this was a scheme that we did at Ramsbury Primary School where we got carried away with um, downpipes, um, and I have Robert Bray Associates to think for the inspiration on the one on the left, which was a Torricelli tube downpipe, so I blocked off the steel downpipe. At the base, so that it fills up with water, and then we drill two small holes in the downpipe so that when it's full up with rain, water will squirt out of those holes and into a rain planter. And when that downpipe is full, water can overflow along the top of the window down the other side, um, where it goes onto a water wheel, which was made by a local resident out of a bicycle wheel. Mm. Uh, This is all out of school, so it's quite fun for the children as well. And then On the right, there is two more pictures of the Pressute School uh, blue downpipe arrangements um, on how it's possible to get totally carried away with those as well, using existing downpipe fittings to to join those together. So none of these are custom made. They're all available off the shelf, these downpipe fittings. Um, And then as part of the course, we do this in slightly more detail, which is that what are the layers in a rain planter? How does a rain planter work? So there are three different layers um, which store different amounts of water and enable plant growth. And again, I I won't talk into those now, (laughs) forgive me, Dan. But essentially, (laughs) the point is it's a sealed unit, uh, which could be a cattle trough or it could be any other type of planter, uh, into which we install some extra pipe work so you can see an overflow there for if it should get full up, that's to stop rainwater spilling over the side and a drilled pipe along the bottom which exits the planter through a tank connector and out of an outflow. Um, And that outflow, it could be directed back into the original surface drain that the downpipe emptied into, it could be. Or you can carry on thinking in terms of what you could do in your garden and you could direct that outflow on into the garden um, via channel, Charlotte used the word rill a rill is a posh channel I think. (laughs) So you could um, move to Hestercombe House in Somerset there and have a very expensive looking rill down your garden. You could build a simple rill in all sorts of ways with overlapping tiles. You could build a simple gravel channel through the lawn. Um, And I want to mention this grass swale as well, which is again a simple way of creating a conveyance for water. Um, Swales or strips of grass are also great at absorbing Heavy metals. So I think it's a three-meter filter strip of grass will absorb up to eighty-five percent of any heavy metals which um, move across it. So, um, and, and I must
0: I must input at this point so the people that are listening from Cambridge. Um, you know, a great example of this can be seen at Eddington, the the newest quarter of Cambridge, and how um, there's swales all through the main uh, far affairs through the um, f- through the estate there, and how successful that is, uh, at, a, at a, you know, at achieving suds. Um, are, are, how, are
2: they planted swales, down or planted? Uh,
0: uh, planted, no, um, I guess they are, yeah, so they're, they're down to um, um, uh, wildflower meadows, yeah. So, yeah,
2: so again, swales can have uh, plants in as well, as well as convey water, or just be grass. You know, there, there's various options on all of these. I like to think of a swale as sort of a long, thin rain garden. Possibly with an extra bit of drainage at the bottom. Yeah. It's to get water from one place to another, um, enabling a bit of infiltration along the way. So we're getting the water now from our rain planter. If there's any left over, if there's any that drains out, it could go on into the garden. Um, or you could get carried away. If you don't want to channel through your pavement, you could be like Wendy and get carried away with big custom made metal arcs or channels, which could take the water directly from the gutter outlet over a path.
0: Is this another slide? Is this another show off slide? Because I completely, completely (laughs) adore this because this is one of the reasons uh, months and months and months ago I contacted you because I saw this on obviously social media because that's where life happens. And I was just, I was, you know, I'm in the industry and I and I don't see many original ideas and I it just blew me away. This just it's so impactful.
2: Yeah, Um, and I think you know, no, no idea is original, is it? These are all inspired from other SUD schemes or, or creative rainwater or artful rainwater schemes, you know, or environmental artists projects that I've seen, you know, on on you know and taken on and thought, yeah, that would be possible, why not? And I think that attitude of that would be possible, why not? Stands anyone in good stead. have a go and you know you think it through and you you do it to the best of your ability to be safe and then have a go and that one on the right was the the most recent arc that I designed or commissioned rather was um, corrugated galvanized steel which is commonly used around here in pig arcs little pig houses so I knew it could be bent to a radius so I found a steel manufacturer that bend it to the radius I needed to get it over the path at that height mm-hmm. uh, and that takes water from an outlet in the gutter and down into a channel and the channel leads down a handy ready-made slope into a rain garden where it soaks in. So there are there are carried away and creative ways to to get the water into your garden as well as uh, cheaper and more affordable and <laughs> achievable ways.
0: To- I've got to say though, but imagine you're imagine you're a, a child and you're obviously you're at that school, how, how big and how amazing that pig arc looks and <laughs> and and from an early age. But how engaging that space is, you know, it works on it works on a well designed rain garden, works on so many levels, you know, you yeah. think that the impact, you know, that arc and the garden would have on those kids and I, i'm not trying to sound all poetic and i'm not going to tear up or anything but it does it's a really engage. it's a really engaging way i must say
2: yeah thank you it's all that it's all about the drawing attention to the designs things to raise awareness it always comes back back down to that for us i mean i'm only short as well I'm only five foot three so i find it pretty amazing to stand under
1: as well lots of 12 <laughs> year olds are actually taller than me So <laughs> i think the other thing that um putting rain gardens in schools uh, achieves, is suddenly going out in the rain becomes exciting because the water wheel's working and the pig arc's really noisy because the rain lands on it and there's, you can see the water moving through the landscape and uh, the, the literal, um, the, the, the image on the left, the water comes down that arc and then it goes over a lovely carved piece of stone um, and it's a thing of beauty that becomes full of movement and sound when it's raining and the kids love it. Whereas before, rain was just something you had to have rainy play for and stay in and, you know, play with felt tips or whatever you did, you know, it, it's, it's got kids outdoors more, which is a completely unintended benefit, but but a benefit nonetheless. Mm. Yeah. We also created in that space. So,
2: so on the left, you can see some hedgerow, which when we were allowed to put a rain garden on that space was very, very overgrown, blocked out a lot of the light. So there's always an opportunity around the edges of a rain garden to consider biodiversity and habitat too, as well as the plants that go in it. What we were able to do with that hedge was to get it hedge laid by a um, hedge layer who was worked locally and then all the cuttings we laid horizontally into a dead hedge at the back of the garden to create a habitat feature, so it saved us taking any waste off the site um, and gave us some more habitat as well. And, and the mix of plants right outside the classroom, It brings other sort of mental health benefits too. So, there was a child in that class who would struggle in lessons with, um, you know, keeping attention. And the teaching assistant used to take him outside to the rain garden um, where they would do a bit of weeding. And apparently, it was one of the few things that would calm him down, you know, and and get him engaged again with what was going on in the classroom. So, there are clear, um, you know, mental health benefits too to these spaces whether they're at a school or a a home. Um, I don't know why that's surprising, because obviously we've all evolved from living in nature, so this is a way of getting nature back into our home gardens. And this is looking uh, the other direction back up at the corrugated arc, so you can perhaps see more clearly how the water comes off the roof down the channel. Channel's just loose lined with EPDM liner and covered with gravel, which gets most of the rainwater, don't have to get all of it down the slope, but it gets most of it down the slope, into this flat shallow depression at the bottom, which uh, is planted up with a good mix of perennials. And um, there's also some other habitat features at this garden too, so there's a dead hedge surrounding the garden there. And there's also a drilled bee post for solitary bee habitat with a sand mound at the bottom which of course anything I do like this is always inspired by John Little's amazing garden at Hill Drop in Essex Um, and there are always opportunities to fit these extra features into a garden. So we build on the biodiversity we can get with the rain garden plants and provide extra habitat around the edge. Uh, There's also a, a play feature here which is a water butt with a sort of pump action handle on the top, so that fills up from a different roof area. Uh, It's on a recycled plastic deck, so the water splashes uh, through the deck and into the rain garden during water play as well. And um, This slide might be shocking to some people, but this is a naked rain garden, so I always show people all the complicated rain gardens I do, (laughs) and then remember that many people wouldn't really be aware of what's underneath all that. And at the end of the day, this is why it's a simple thing to create a rain garden. It's a shallow, flat, free draining area where the soil is shaped into a low bank or berm around the edge. Um, And that's fed by a downpipe from the house. And it just allows water to be directed there to soak in slowly. Uh, And then it's planted with a mixture of nice, nice plants that you like in your garden. We'll talk about those a bit more in a minute. But it's important, I think, to hold this, hold this picture. This is all that a rain garden essentially needs to be, plus some plants, and this is an example of a tiny little rain garden we did at a school. So because we had three rain planters before the rain ever reached this rain garden, we could have a very small area, this is probably less than, it might be two square meters at most, um, planted up, and then the establishing plants on the right there. It doesn't have to be a big area. And I think nowhere is that shown better than the front of the UK Rain Garden Guide, um, which was by Bob Bray, Dusty Gedge, Gary Grant and Lanny Lithivsky. I never know how to say her surname and I must ask her one of these days. So this guide was written, I think at least 10 years ago now, but it remains the only sort of domestic rain garden guide really that's accessible, I think we've mentioned the Syria SUDS manual which is the professional uh, industry uh, best practice for sustainable drainage systems but I think this is a great guide it can be downloaded for free from raingardens.info and it's for residential and small scale and sort of retrofit use and it's a really good starting point to share with people um, and it, it doesn't necessarily go into a lot of detail about how you create um, these features, and I think that's where Charlotte and I felt there was a gap. Was, was we wanted to share our knowledge and experience of actually building these features um, with some specifics on practicalities of, of, of creating them so that people could go away feeling enabled to create
1: them themselves. Mm. And I, sh- I should say at that point that this the rain garden guide was um, all those years ago funded by Thames Water and. and mm. They have been one of the funders of the workshops that uh, Wendy and I have been running most recently. So, they funded um, the most recent workshops along with Wiltshire Wildlife Trust. Um, and it's, it's really great to see water companies and other organizations being prepared to sort of recognize the benefits and, and then fund these sort of projects, which mean that then we don't have to charge people to attend workshops and, and that. us has been brilliant because at the moment we're still convincing people explaining them explaining to them what they are um so we're sort of at the stage where it's really about inspiring people to to build them and we we don't want that to be a a cost barrier in the way to coming and finding out more so support from organizations like that has been just really brilliant
0: and and do you feel that um because i'm again i'm talking from cambridge here do do you do you hear on the grapevine that other water companies are doing similar things that they are that they've put a uh, put part of their budget aside to pay for these outreach projects is that kind of the done thing within the water industry
1: I think it really varies but I think most of them <laughs> are doing something um, yeah. and I think we would all just like to be doing it at a bigger scale or yeah. or maybe um, maybe inversely at a smaller scale in the sense that very often they're investing in big new build projects which is great but actually the, the biggest win is enabling lots of people to do lots of little things yeah. um and, and i think that's harder for a, a water company to have control of exactly where the spend is going but actually that's where the biggest opportunity is
2: yeah yeah,
1: yeah. so
2: um plants that's what we all love about rain garden we all love the plants and um i'm gonna Put soil into that sentence as well. The soil is just as important as the plant. Um, and despite the name, rain gardens only contain shallow water for brief periods after heavy rain. And you'll probably find the biggest misconception about rain gardens is that people think they are ponds, and that because they're called rain gardens, they must be wet all the time. Uh, however, the opposite is true. Rain gardens must be free draining and they are mostly dry features. Um, so the plants that go in them need to be quite adaptable and they need to withstand brief waterlogging, but also be drought tolerant. So it's almost best to err on the side of drought tolerance, because what you're creating is a sort of moist but free draining soil, even in the wettest areas um, in an ideal world. So it, the, the drought tolerant plants can be positioned sort of higher up the slope around the rain garden and the plants that may be more... Uh, marginal, such as our native rushes or flag iris, they're the sorts of things you might consider putting right by the inflow. So, even in small rain events, they get some water. So, considering plants in terms of soil moisture within the rain garden is, is one approach. And um, we've, I'm not going to talk through the other three benefits of SUD, so I'm going to stick as we're on plants with the biodiversity element. a rain garden. So the plants we use in a rain garden can really support um, any efforts um, locally and I I would just mention here local biodiversity action plans quite often provide inspiration of what you could include in your rain garden to um, benefit local biodiversity and what's needed in your area. and again, I'm sure all the people listening to this podcast will have heard all the living planet, you know, report figures that we've seen lately. Um, there's figures from saying 76% of insect biomass is gone. And that's, you know, I want to say in the last 25 years, but it's essentially it's in my lifetime. I am much older than 25. But since since I was born, most of the nature, most of the biomass, most of the wildlife in this planet has gone and that is literally just in my lifetime and when you think about the whole of human existence being comparatively the blink of an eye mm. you know, the fact that we've done that much in our very very brief time um, is is particularly shocking and we need to start rebuilding what we've completely trashed so again all of these um little uh, initiatives that people can do and be aware of um are making a big difference and i'll mention dave goulson's Book there, the Silent Earth, perverting the Insect Apocalypse. It's a great old, uh, Christmas book buy if anyone's looking for a. Cartoon. Yeah, it,
0: it really is. Dave, <laughs> Dave is absolutely fantastic. Professor, sorry, Professor Dave. <laughs> he's, um, he's very good. He's um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Uh, and I know you've uh, done a podcast with him too, haven't you, Dan? Who, who
0: haven't I done a podcast with? You or, know, always oh, worth I, listening I, to. Yeah, he's, um, but, he, but but again, he puts it. In, but it's it all joking aside, it is a great read because he puts it in it quite a depressing subject, it puts it across in quite an entertaining way and does get the message across really.
2: Yeah Um, and then we always talk about soils a bit in our workshops as well because a healthy soil has a good soil structure, has a good organic matter content and that enables roots to flourish and grow and root structures are what helps a soil infiltrate, store um, and filter water as well as provide a sort of surface environment, like on the surface of the roots is where the soil organisms will will flourish. Um, And so a healthy soil has more micro and macro pores and those small pores within the soil, uh, those small air pockets, um, make the plants better able to filter and store uh, water and carbon or the soil better able to store carbon. So that's carbon sequestration. And when we could spend a whole day talking about that. And it's a field that I'm still learning about myself, but it's so applicable to an effective rain garden. Oh. It's how healthy your soil is. Um, and biodiversity within a garden, I think there are two great examples here. These are not rain gardens, but just to see how um, a mosaic of habitats commonly found within a garden environment can result in more biodiversity. So biodiversity comes from complexity, and there's two examples here. Great Dixter have done um, surveys of wildlife and insects in their garden, and and the findings are available on their website. Um, And Great Dixter is quite a traditional garden, if you like, Mm. but it has a huge range of habitats and plants and native and non-native and then another link at the bottom to the uk, which have an amazing brownfield landscape that use uh, recycled substrates to create unexpectedly efficient areas for plants to grow. And these are not rain gardens, but it's all examples of how we can encourage um, biodiversity into our garden using plants and thinking about plants and thinking about what they grow in. So... A healthy soil for a rain garden is just as important as those um, substrates as well Mm. Um, and i want to draw attention as well to the fact that the royal horticultural society uh, in the uk has very recently in september announced their planet friendly gardening campaign so they have a sustainability strategy now and water management is one of the six key areas in there and rain gardens are a key part of that sustainability strategy So I think more homeowners through this are going to become aware of the existence of a rain garden and perhaps need more advice and and need more direction from a garden designer that, you know, comes into their property. So that's a great first step. And I think that the RHS have used the picture there of my uh, 2009 rain garden at Hampton Court. So it's still going strong after all these years. Um, So, yes, and obviously gardening in a changing climate was a report they wrote a few years ago, which is still very relevant. So plants are key and there's so much research and knowledge you could apply to plants. I think what we provide in the workshop is sort of a list of key plants to start you off, but there's always others that can be introduced. Um, two of my favourites um, are this Deschampsia, uh, on yeah. the left there, the is an evergreen grass that tolerates most soil conditions and aspects and it's semi-evergreen um, and it looks brilliant and it will give you winter structure with seed heads as well um, and it seems to be an indestructible rain garden plant. It's not a thug, it just looks great and um, surprisingly I've put the one on the right end which is a Salvia caradona. So salvia traditionally is a a Mediterranean plant and people would say, don't plant those in a rain garden because they won't like wet roots. Um, However, we're sort of finding the opposite really. It comes down to what I just said. If your garden is well-drained and it's free draining and, and rain gardens are mostly dry and you only get inundation for brief periods, then really if these plants are on the slope of the rain garden and not right next to the inlet, there's no reason why Mediterranean plants shouldn't work in a rain
1: garden environment either um because
0: if we come back full circle you know you know we're coming back to how our weather patterns are changing so we have longer you know we have longer periods of weather locked in don't we so we're going to yeah. have longer periods of drought and then a, a weather event so it kind of stands to reason really
2: yeah absolutely so as I say if it's free draining which it should be then you might be surprised at the range of plants that will work in rain gardens, so it's not as daunting as it might otherwise seem. Mm. And when, uh, again, when we present the course, I do a lot more slides on plants, but I just wanted to include this one, which is about roots. So one of my key planting design principles is, is roots because um, traditionally back in the day, and what you'll see in a lot of the US rain garden guides is diagrams of blocks of plants, you know, seven of these, nine of these, five of these in in blocks Um, and none of them are sort of intermingled within each other at all and and traditional planting design have probably been about swathes of plants or planting in groups and once you start thinking about what's going on below the surface in terms of root structure and this is why perennial plants are so good in rain gardens is because perennial plants have a a deeper and more complex root system than annuals do, Um, and what you can end up with is this um, sort of dense root coverage. If you plant the rain garden fully, you you get the maximum infiltration and the healthiest soil because you've given the soil that that variety of root structure that Charlotte alluded to earlier. Uh, It's the sort of thing that's going on with regenerative farming now, is to think about um, the roots on plants. Mm. Uh, to improve soil health and but as we know now it also improves soil porosity and the ability for soils to store carbon
0: so who would have thought it a eh? nature known best it? who, who would, would have really thought it? thought
2: it who would have thought undoing all the work we've done for the last 70 years <laughs> <laughs> So, i would also like to mention um, claudia west at this point um she wrote this book which is uh, planting in a post wild world yeah. And she that, together with um, Thomas Rayner. They're based in the States. Um, Claudia is originally from Germany and her expression is matrix not monoculture. Mono so to, to do some research of, of her work in plant communities, um, I personally and as rain garden UK advocate a mix of native and non-native plants within a domestic rain garden. I think that makes a lot of sense from encouraging the greatest amount of biodiversity and increasing the season of interest. Um, Claudia as well investigates natural plant communities or native plant communities, but also does schemes including non-native plants all over the world. And and there's some really useful um, pointers there about how you can start thinking in detail about rain garden plants, Um, or you can just go to the rain garden guide or or, take our standard list of plants to start you off. So, but it's just such a fascinating field. I think more, more research is always a good thing. Yeah. And then sometimes you see plants, um, perhaps they've been designed with the planting groups of three, five or seven plants. And then between those plants, you've got great big areas of mulch, which might be hardened bark chip or, or gravel. And, and what you end up with is a, you know, a rain garden full of mulch, but not many plants. And it needs to be <laughs> the way around. You need to fill the gaps between the plants with other plants or lower ground cover plants. So you get that continuity and that complexity, which as we know, results in more biodiversity. Um, and there's a load of resources there. Look, I can stop blathering on now. I think Dan is going to put these resources in the um, details at the end of the or I'm yeah, gonna... yeah, Yeah,
0: there will be uh, that'll be um...
2: so I won't go through those, but there's sort of domestic scale uh, reference guides and the industry sub subs guidance links there as well. And then a SUDS by sector overview, which is quite useful, which the GLA recently produced. Um, so you can uh, get a little guide about how SUDS might work in schools, social housing, parks, hospitals, commercial and retail. That might be a bit more accessible.
0: So there's no, I guess the overarching point is there's no shortage of information. There's no, no
2: exactly. <laughs> there's
0: no, that. basically what you're saying is there's no bloody excuse. Just get on with it. And, and, um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, start to put in these rain planters and all joking aside, though, but there is, there are so there are obviously along with your causes of, of course, and um, there are there are so many resources out there, aren't there? So it, it shouldn't be, again, such a uh, um, such an effort to, to start to think about these things very quickly.
2: I think that the amount of resources is a stumbling block for a lot of people. I mean, we none of us have a lot of time. So. When it involves looking through so much information to distill what you actually need, Mm. that's what takes the time. And I think that's another kind of gap that we're hoping to fill with courses. We give people the basics and you kind of know what you need to know uh, approach. But you'll certainly know enough to get on and do a basic uh, rain garden or rain planter um, that falls below any planning permission required. Yes. That's in England, Scotland, or Wales. So, um, yes, there we go. That's of course Dan came on at the bottom there, with a group of people drilling holes in a piece of uh, waste pipe to put in the rain planter.
0: Well, I was the on site photographer. I wasn't, I wasn't
2: drilling. <laughs> I, drilling I was up. the pepper
0: <laughs> Epsi, <you know>. <laughs> Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, um, yes, I don't know if Charlotte wants to add anything else, but um, that's us. And we're always happy for people to get in touch. Um, as well though, at Rain Garden UK on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If you want to speak to us more about those. Thank you, Dan.
0: Cool. So thank you very much, guys. Um slightly different format to the usual podcast, but thoroughly enjoyable, thoroughly informative. And um thank you very much, guys. Really appreciate your time.
2: Thanks very much yeah. for inviting us along. Good stuff. Lovely. We
0: <laughs> hope we've inspired some people
2: to
1: act.
0: <laughs> you certainly will do and then um yeah it'll be people's new year's resolution to get out there and create uh, planters and rain gardens so cool thanks guys thank you thank
2: you